Book Ninth, Chapter Four of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. Book Ninth, Chapter Four. The near Thursday, coming nearer and bringing Sir Luke Strett, brought also blessedly an abatement of other rigours. The weather changed, the stubborn storm yielded, and the autumn sunshine, baffled for many days, but now hot and almost vindictive, came into its own again, and with an almost audible pain, a suffusion of bright sound that was one with the bright colour, took large possession. Venice glowed and plashed and called and chimed again, the air was like a clap of hands, and the scattered pinks, yellows, blues, sea-greens were like a hanging out of vivid stuffs, a laying down of fine carpets. Densher rejoiced in this on the occasion of his going to the station to meet the great doctor. He went after consideration which, as he was constantly aware, was at present his imposed, his only way of doing anything. That was where the event had landed him, where no event in his life had landed him before. He had thought, no doubt, from the day he was born, much more than he had acted, except indeed that he remembered thoughts, a few of them, which at the moment of their coming to him had thrilled him almost like adventures but anything like his actual state he had not, as to the prohibition of impulse, accident, range, the prohibition, in other words, of freedom, hitherto known. The great oddity was that if he had felt his arrival, so few weeks back, especially as an adventure, nothing could now less resemble one than the fact of his staying. It would be an adventure to break away, to depart, to go back above all to London, and tell Kate Croy he had done so. But there was something of the merely, the almost meanly, obliged and involved sort in his going on as he was, that was the effect in particular of Mrs. Stringham's visit, which had left him as with such a taste in his mouth of what he couldn't do. It had made this quantity clear to him, and yet had deprived him of the sense, the other sense, of what, for a refuge, he possibly could. It was but a small make-believe of freedom, he knew, to go to the station for Sir Luke. Nothing equally free at all events had he yet turned over so long. What then was his odious position, but that again and again he was afraid? He stiffened himself under this consciousness, as if it had been a tax levied by a tyrant. He hadn't at any time proposed to himself to live long enough for fear to preponderate in his life. Such was simply the advantage it had actually got of him. He was afraid, for instance, that an advance to his distinguished friend might prove for him somehow a pledge or a committal. He was afraid of it as a current that would draw him too far, yet he thought with an equal aversion of being shabby, being poor, through fear. What finally prevailed with him was the reflection that, whatever might happen, the great man had, after that occasion at the palace, their young woman's brief sacrifice to society, and the hour of Mrs. Stringham's appeal had brought it well to the surface, shown him marked benevolence. Mrs. Stringham's comments on the relation in which Milly had placed them made him, it was unmistakable, feel things he perhaps hadn't felt. It was in the spirit of seeking a chance to feel again adequately whatever it was he had missed— it was no doubt in that spirit, so far as it went a stroke for freedom, that Densher, arriving betimes, paced the platform before the train came in. Only after it had come, and he had presented himself at the door of Sir Luke's compartment, with everything that followed, only as the situation developed, the sense of an anticlimax to so many intensities deprived his apprehensions and hesitations even of the scant dignity they might claim. He could scarce have said if the visitor's manner less showed the remembrance that might have suggested expectation, or made sure to work of surprise in presence of the fact. Sir Luke had clean forgotten, so Densher read, the rather remarkable young man he had formerly gone about with, though he picked him up again, on the spot, with one large quiet look. The young man felt himself so picked, and the thing immediately affected him as the proof of a splendid economy. Opposed to all the waste with which he was now connected, the exhibition was of a nature quite nobly to admonish him. The eminent pilgrim, in the train, all the way, had used the hours as he needed, thinking not a moment in advance of what finally awaited him. 
An exquisite case awaited him, of which, in this queer way, the remarkable young man was an outlying part, but the single motion of his face, the motion into which Densher, from the platform, lightly stirred its stillness, was his first renewed cognition. If, however, he had suppressed the matter by leaving Victoria, he would at once suppress now, in turn, whatever else suited. The perception of this became as a symbol of the whole pitch, so far as one might one's self be concerned of his visit. One saw, our friend further meditated, everything that in contact he appeared to accept, if only for much not to trouble to sink it, what one missed was the inward use he made of it. Densher began wondering, at the great water-steps outside, what use he would make of the anomaly of their having there to separate. Eugenio had been on the platform, in the respectful rear, and the gondola from the palace under his direction bestirred itself, with its attaching mixture of alacrity and dignity, on their coming out of the station together. Densher didn't at all mind now that, he himself of necessity refusing a seat on the deep black cushions beside the guest of the palace, he had Milly's three emissaries for spectators, and this susceptibility he also knew it was something to have left behind. All he did was to smile down vaguely from the steps, they could see him, the donkeys, as shut out as they would. I don't, he said with a sad headshake, go there now. Oh, Sir Luke Strett returned, and made no more of it, so that the thing was splendid, Densher fairly thought, as an inscrutability quite inevitable and unconscious. His friend appeared not even to make of it that he supposed it might be for respect to the crisis. He didn't, moreover, afterwards make much more of anything, after the classic craft, that is, obeying in the main Pascal's inimitable stroke from the poop, had performed the manoeuvre by which it presented, receding a back, so to speak, rendered positively graceful by the high black hump of its fells. Densher watched the gondola out of sight. He heard Pascal's cry, borne to him across the water, for the sharp, firm swerve into a side-canal, a shortcut to the palace. He had no gondola of his own, it was his habit never to take one, and he humbly, as in Venice it is humble, walked away, though not without having for some time longer stood as if fixed where the guest of the palace had left him. It was strange enough, but he found himself as never yet, and as he couldn't have reckoned, in presence of the truth that was the truest about Milly. He couldn't have reckoned on the force of the difference instantly made, for it was all in the air as he heard Pascal's cry and saw the boat disappear, by the mere visibility, on the spot, of the personage summoned to her aid. He hadn't only never been near the facts of her condition, which counted so as a blessing for him, he hadn't only, with all the world, hovered outside an impenetrable ring fence, within which there reigned a kind of expensive vagueness made up of smiles and silences, and beautiful fictions and priceless arrangements, all strained to breaking. But he had also, with everyone else, as he now felt, actively fostered suppressions which were in the direct interest of everyone's good manner, everyone's pity, everyone's really quite generous ideal. It was a conspiracy of silence, as the cliché went, to which no one had made an exception, the great smudge of mortality across the picture, the shadow of pain and horror, finding in no quarter a surface of spirit or of speech that consented to reflect it. The mere aesthetic instinct of mankind, our young man had more than once, in the connection, said to himself, letting the rest of the proposition drop, but touching again thus sufficiently on the outrage even to taste involved in one's having to see. So then it had been a general conscious fool's paradise, from which the specified had been chased like a dangerous animal. What therefore had at present befallen was that the specified, standing all the while at the gate, had now crossed the threshold as in Sir Luke Strett's person, and quite on such a scale as to fill out the whole precinct. Densher's nerves, absolutely his heartbeats too, had measured the change before he, on this occasion, moved away. The facts of physical suffering, of incurable pain, of the chance grimly narrowed, had been made, at a stroke, intense, and this was to be the way he was now to feel them. The clearance of the air, in short, making vision not only possible but inevitable, the one thing left to be thankful for was the breadth of Sir Luke's shoulders, which, should one be able to keep in line with them, might in some degree interpose. 
It was, however, far from plain to Densher for the first day or two that he was again to see his distinguished friend at all. That he couldn't, on any basis actually serving, return to the palace, this was as solid to him, every whit, as the other feature of his case, the fact of the publicity attaching to his prescription through his not having taken himself off. He had been seen often enough in the Leporelli gondola, as accordingly he was not on any presumption destined to meet Sir Luke about the town, where the latter would have neither time nor taste to lounge, nothing more would occur between them unless the great man should surprisingly wait upon him. His doing that, Densher further reflected, wouldn't even simply depend on Mrs. Stringham's having decided to, as they might say, turn him on. It would depend as well, for there would be practically some difference to her, on her actually attempting it, and it would depend above all on what Sir Luke would make of such an overture. Densher had for that matter his own view of the amount, to say nothing of the particular sort, of response it might expect from him. He had his own view of the ability of such a personage even to understand such an appeal. To what extent could he be prepared, and what importance in fine could he attach? Densher asked himself these questions, in truth, to put his own position at the worst. He should miss the great man completely, unless the great man should come to see him, and the great man could only come to see him for a purpose unsupposable. Therefore he wouldn't come at all, and consequently there was nothing to hope. It wasn't in the least that Densher invoked this violence to all probability, but it pressed on him that there were few possible diversions he could afford now to miss. Nothing in his predicament was so odd as that, incontestably afraid of himself, he was not afraid of Sir Luke. He had an impression, which he clung to, based on a previous taste of the visitor's company, that he would somehow let him off. The truth about Milly perched on his shoulders and sounded in his tread became by the fact of his presence the name and the form for the time of everything in the place, but it didn't, for the difference, sit in his face, the face so squarely and easily turned to Densher at the earlier season. His presence on the first occasion, not as the result of a summons but as a friendly whim of his own, had had quite another value, and though our young man could scarce regard that value as recoverable, he yet reached out in imagination to a renewal of the old contact. He didn't propose, as he privately and forcibly phrased the matter, to be a hog, but there was something he after all did want for himself. It was something, this stuck to him, that Sir Luke would have had for him if it hadn't been impossible. These were his worst days, the two or three, those on which even the sense of the tension at the palace didn't much help him not to feel that his destiny made but light of him. He had never been, as he judged it, so down. In mean conditions, without books, without society, almost without money, he had nothing to do but to wait. His main support really was his original idea, which didn't leave him, of waiting for the deepest depth his predicament could sink him to. Fate would invent, if he but gave it time, some refinement of the horrible. It was just inventing, meanwhile, this suppression of Sir Luke. When the third day came without a sign, he knew what to think. He had given Mrs. Stringham during her call on him no such answer as would have armed her faith, and the ultimatum she had described as ready for him when he should be ready was therefore, if on no other ground than her want of this power to answer for him, not to be presented. The presentation, heaven knew, was not what he desired. That was not either, we hasten to declare, as Densher then soon enough saw, the idea with which Sir Luke finally stood before him again. For stand before him again he finally did, just when our friend had gloomily embraced the belief that the limit of his power to absent himself from London obligations would have been reached. Four or five days, exclusive of journeys, represented the largest supposable sacrifice, to a head not crowned, on the part of one of the highest medical lights in the world, so that really when the personage in question, following up a tinkle of the bell, solidly rose in the doorway, it was to impose on Densher a vision that for the instant cut like a knife. It spoke the fact, and in a single dreadful word, of the magnitude, he shrank from calling it anything else, of Milly's case. 
The great man had not gone then, and an immense surrender to her immense need was so expressed in it that some effect, some help, some hope were flagrantly part of the expression. It was for Densher, with his reaction from disappointment, as if he were conscious of ten things at once, the foremost being that just conceivably, since Sir Luke was still there, she had been saved. Close upon its heels, however, and quite as sharply, came the sense that the crisis, plainly even now to be prolonged for him, was to have none of that sound simplicity. Not only had his visitor not dropped in to gossip about Milly, he hadn't dropped in to mention her at all, he had dropped in fairly to show that during the brief remainder of his stay, the end of which was now in sight, as little as possible of that was to be looked for. The demonstration, such as it was, was in the key of their previous acquaintance, and it was their previous acquaintance that had made him come. He was not to stop longer than the Saturday next at hand, but there were things of interest he should like to see again meanwhile. It was for these things of interest, for Venice and the opportunity of Venice, for a prowl or two, as he called it, and a turnabout, that he had looked his young man up, producing on the latter's part, as soon as the case had, with the lapse of a further twenty-four hours, so defined itself, the most incongruous yet most beneficent revulsion. Nothing could in fact have been more monstrous on the surface, and Densher was well aware of it, than the relief he found during this short period in the tacit drop of all reference to the palace, in neither hearing news nor asking for it. That was what had come out for him, on his visitor's entrance, even in the very seconds of suspense that were connecting the fact also directly and intensely with Milly's state. He had come to say he had saved her, he had come, as from Mrs. Stringham, to say how she might be saved, he had come, in spite of Mrs. Stringham, to say she was lost. The distinct throbs of hope, of fear, simultaneous for all their distinctness, merged their identity in a bound of the heart just as immediate, and which remained after they had passed. It simply did wonders for him, this was the truth, that Sir Luke was, as he would have said, quiet. The result of it was the oddest consciousness as of a blessed calm after a storm. He had been trying for weeks, as we know, to keep superlatively still, and trying it largely in solitude and silence, but he looked back on it now as on the heat of fever— the real, the right stillness was this particular form of society. They walked together and they talked, looked up pictures again and recovered impressions. Sir Luke knew just what he wanted, haunted a little the dealers in old wares, sat down at Florian's for rest and mild drinks, blessed above all the grand weather, a bath of warm air, a pageant of autumn light. Once or twice while they rested the great man closed his eyes, keeping them so for some minutes while his companion, the more easily watching his face for it, made private reflections on the subject of lost sleep. He had been up at night with her, he in person, for hours, but this was all he showed of it, and was apparently to remain his nearest approach to an illusion. The extraordinary thing was that Densher could take it in perfectly as evidence, could turn cold at the image looking out of it, and yet that he could at the same time not intermit a throb of his response to accepted liberation. The liberation was an experience that held its own, and he continued to know why, in spite of his deserts, in spite of his folly, in spite of everything, he had so fondly hoped for it. He had hoped for it, had sat in his room there waiting for it, because he had thus divined in it, should it come, some power to let him off. He was being let off, dealt with in the only way that didn't aggravate his responsibility. The beauty was also that this wasn't on system, or on any basis of intimate knowledge, it was just by being a man of the world, and by knowing life, by feeling the real, that Sir Luke did him good. There had been in all the case too many women. A man's sense of it, another man's, changed the air, and he wondered what man, had he chosen, would have been more to his purpose than this one. He was large and easy, that was the benediction, he knew what mattered and what didn't, he distinguished between the essence and the shell, the just grounds and the unjust for fussing. One was thus, if one were concerned with him, or exposed to him at all, in his hands for whatever he should do, and not much less affected by his mercy than one might have been by his rigour. 
The grand thing, it did come to that, was the way he carried off, as one might fairly call it, the business of making odd things natural. Nothing, if they hadn't taken it so, could have exceeded the unexplained oddity between them, of Densher's now complete detachment from the poor ladies at the palace. Nothing could have exceeded the no less marked anomaly of the great man's own abstentions of speech. He made, as he had done when they met at the station, nothing whatever of anything, and the effect of it, Densher would have said, was a relation with him quite resembling that of doctor and patient. One took the cue from him as one might have taken a dose, except that the cue was pleasant in the taking. That was why one could leave it to his tacit discretion, why for the three or four days Densher again and again did so leave it, merely wandering a little at the most on the eve of Saturday, the announced term of the episode. Waiting once more on this latter occasion, the Saturday morning, for Sir Luke's reappearance at the station, our friend had to recognise the drop of his own borrowed ease, the result, naturally enough, of the prospect of losing a support. The difficulty was that, on such lines as had served them, the support was Sir Luke's personal presence. Would he go without leaving some substitute for that, and without breaking, either, his silence in respect to his errand? Densher was in still deeper ignorance than at the hour of his call, and what was truly prodigious at so supreme a moment was that, as had immediately to appear, no gleam of light on what he had been living with for a week found its way out of him. What he had been doing was proof of a huge interest as well as of a huge fee, yet when the Leporelli gondola again, and somewhat tardily, approached, his companion, watching from the water-steps, studied his fine closed face as much as ever in vain. It was like a lesson from the highest authority on the subject of the relevant, so that its blankness affected Densher of a sudden almost as a cruelty, feeling it quite awfully compatible, as he did, with Milly's having ceased to exist, and the suspense continued after they had passed together, as time was short, directly into the station, where Eugenio, in the field early, was mounting guard over the compartment he had secured. The strain, though probably lasting at the carriage door but a couple of minutes, prolonged itself so for our poor gentleman's nerves that he involuntarily directed a long look at Eugenio, who met it, however, as only Eugenio could. Sir Luke's attention was given for the time to the right bestowal of his numerous effects, about which he was particular, and Densher fairly found himself, so far as silence could go, questioning the representative of the palace. It didn't humiliate him now, it didn't humiliate him even to feel that the personage exactly knew how little he satisfied him. Eugenio resembled to that extent Sir Luke, to the extent of the extraordinary things with which his facial habit was compatible. By the time, however, that Densher had taken from it all its possessor intended, Sir Luke was free and with a handout for farewell. He offered the hand at first without speech, only on meeting his eyes could our young man see that they had never yet so completely looked at him. It was never, with Sir Luke, that they looked harder at one time than at another, but they looked longer, and this, even a shade of it, might mean on his part everything. It meant, Densher for ten seconds believed, that Milly Thiel was dead, so that the word at last spoken made him start. I shall come back. Then she's better. I shall come back within the month, Sir Luke repeated, without heeding the question. He had dropped Densher's hand, but he held him otherwise still. I bring you a message from Miss Thiel, he said, as if they hadn't spoken of her. I'm commissioned to ask you from her to go and see her. Densher's rebound from his supposition had a violence that his stare betrayed. She asks me. Sir Luke had got into the carriage, the door of which the guard had closed, but he spoke again as he stood at the window, bending a little, but not leaning out. She told me she'd like it, and I promised that, as I expected to find you here, I'd let you know. Densher on the platform took it from him, but what he took brought the blood into his face quite as what he had had to take from Mrs. Stringham, and he was also bewildered. Then she can receive? She can receive you. And you're coming back? Oh, because I must. She's not to move. She's to stay. I come to her. 
"'I see, I see,' said Densher, who indeed did see, saw the sense of his friend's words, and saw beyond it as well. What Mrs. Stringham had announced, and what he had yet expected not to have to face, had then come. Sir Luke had kept it for the last, but there it was, and the colourless compact form it was now taking, the tone of one man of the world to another, who, after what had happened, would understand, was but the characteristic manner of his appeal. Densher was to understand remarkably much, and the great thing certainly was to show that he did. "'I'm particularly obliged. I'll go to-day.' He brought that out, but in his pause, while they continued to look at each other, the train had slowly creaked into motion. There was time but for one more word, and the young man chose it, out of twenty, with intense concentration. "'Then she's better?' Sir Luke's face was wonderful. "'Yes, she's better.' And he kept it at the window while the train receded, holding him with it still. It was to be his nearest approach to the utter reference they had hitherto so successfully avoided. If it stood for everything, never had a face had to stand for more. So Densher, held after the train had gone, sharply reflected. So he reflected, asking himself into what abyss it pushed him, even while conscious of retreating under the maintained observation of Eugenio. End of Book Ninth, Chapter Four